Hey, well, we are going to go into our time of teaching right now, and uh, so if you're, if you're new, uh, inside your program is a message note sheet. You want to definitely take that out and help you follow along today, and if you guys are all set, I'm ready to go. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, we're, uh, we're waiting here on you. Uh, we, we're gathering now around your word. Uh, Jesus, you are our king, and we come each week uh, not to go through motions, but to sit at your feet as our king and to listen and to learn uh, what it looks like to follow you to get our marching orders for this, this new week. And so we, we pray today as we, uh, we talk about uh, religion and how destructive it can be in our lives and how you've called us to, to a new relationship that's very different than that. We just pray that you come and meet us in a, a fresh way. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are new, uh, we, we are in a series uh, that we've been in now since the beginning of the year called uh, Jesus the King. And uh, this is a series uh, about the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, as told through the eyes of one of the uh, key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. Uh, his name is Mark, and he, he writes an account of the life and teaching of Jesus based on his friendship, close association with the apostle Peter. So, so the gospel of Mark is based on the eyewitness uh, testimony of Peter. And so about five weeks ago, we launched into a new section. We're moving here at blazing speed. And uh, we moved into a new sep- uh, section of chapter two of Mark. And, uh, and so what I pointed out is that uh, in the chapter two, it's this new section where Mark is going to describe for us kind of five uh, key representative type events that happen early in the ministry of Jesus, where he begins to have significant conflict with these religious leaders of his day that will eventually lead a couple years down the line to his arrest and execution. So Mark's kind of setting up this story. He's got to give us a, a preview of coming attractions that, that not all is well. Jesus has come. He's announcing his kingdom. Uh, people are being healed. Amazing things are happening. But not all is well that there is a storm cloud brewing. And so we took a couple weeks, we looked at the first two of the, of the five uh, conflicts, and then we started a three-week mini-series looking at the last three conflicts called Religion Kills. And we took a week off for Easter uh, last week, but today we're going to wrap up that little mini-series uh, looking at that fifth and final conflict. Now, this conflict, like conflict four, if you were here right before Easter, uh, also involves the Sabbath. And so when we dealt with this a couple weeks ago, I spent quite a bit of time setting up the Sabbath and the role it played in ancient Israel. Uh, but before, uh, we, but be, it's, been a, it's been a couple weeks, so before we jump in today, I just want to do just a quick review, hit on a couple highlights. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Israel 101, a quick review. So let's just kind of quickly talk about some things we learned about Sabbath, and then we'll jump into the, the passage for today. So what we learned uh, a couple weeks ago is that it's hard for us to even begin to understand today how important the Sabbath was in ancient Israel. Uh, it had a long uh, tradition. Uh, God had revealed himself to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai when they first came out of slavery, out of, of Egypt. And uh, they'd entered into this covenant relationship, much like a marriage-type relationship. And, and one of the gifts that God gave to Israel as part of that relationship was the gift of the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath is one day uh, every week. It started at Friday night at sundown, went to Saturday night uh, at sundown. One day off every week. So they had been slaves. Uh, they hadn't had days off. He said, now that we're in a relationship, I want you to have a paid holiday, so to speak, every week. I went one day off 
And so this is a day to, to rest, uh, to recover, to reflect, uh, to seek me, to pray, to build relationships, your family and friends, uh, have a great time. It was, it was a day of celebration, really. Uh, the rabbis uh, would later say it was a day, if you're married, to make love to your wife, which kind of gives you the tone of just celebration uh, of this day, of, of, of creation, all that sort of thing. And so it was this tremendous gift. But by the time of Jesus, uh, the religious leaders over generations had added all these man-made rules to what God had said, and it had turned this incredible gift into a burden. And so we talked about that last time, how they, they had designed, they had identified 39 different categories of activity that, that they classified as work. And then for each of the 39, there was just uh, rule after rule, there's tons of rules in each of the categories about what you could do and what you couldn't do. And so they sort of sucked the life out of it. And there were rules about medicine. There were rules about uh, healing and doctors and what you could do on the Sabbath. And so last time we, we talked about one of these, just to, to, to kind, of, kind of give you a feel. Remember they said that like if your roof collapsed uh, on the Sabbath, that you were allowed to go in to see if there were any survivors. If there was anyone alive, you were allowed to, to take them out. Uh, you, you, if, they, if they were dead, you need to leave them in. But uh, if they were alive, you could take them out and you could even administer first aid if it was a life-threatening condition. But uh, if it wasn't life-threatening, you needed to wait till Sabbath was over. So even like if they have a dislocated arm or, or something like that, that you needed to not put it back in place uh, until the Sabbath was over. So you can see kind of the mindset of this, that, that this incredible gift has now become a burden. Well, so Jesus would often come into conflict with the, uh, the religious leaders over the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus observed the Sabbath. He was, a, he was a observant Jew. He was a good Jew. Uh, and, and the Sabbath was a good thing, and so he observed the Sabbath. What he didn't observe was um, he didn't observe all the man-made rules that, that had been added on, and this brought him into conflict. And so later on, you know, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we move into a whole new era of human history. As Christ followers today, we're no longer under all many of the Old Testament laws that were there to help Israel, kind of like training wheels, to train them how to have a relationship with God. And so, like, we don't, you know, we don't, uh, we don't, we don't have, well, honor the Sabbath in the same way today. We don't do circumcision as a, as a religious act today. We don't offer all the sacrifices. We don't eat kosher. But at the time, uh, Jesus was under that law. He was born under the law. He was a good Jew. He honored that. What he didn't honor was all these man-made rules. And this brought him into tremendous conflict. And one of the biggest conflict. Uh, was over healing because Jesus uh, felt free to heal on the Sabbath. He would often heal. And you could see how this would violate uh, their, their concept of the Sabbath, that you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. And so what's going to happen today is that it's going to be a Saturday. It's going to be another Saturday. Uh, it's going to be Jesus is in synagogue, as he usually is on Saturday, to worship God and to teach and so on. And so he's going to notice that there's a man there with a shriveled hand. Now I want you to picture this. Uh, this man, we don't know whether he was born uh, with a, uh, uh, some sort of uh, disability in his hand or, or whether it was uh, the result of a disease like severe arthritis later on or whether it was uh, injured in an accident. We don't know how it happened, but it was a severely uh, crippled hand. And so it's, it's, uh, it's shriveled up. So you kind of picture it, uh, you know, just the, the, the skin, uh, the, the, the muscles, uh, the, the bones, the tendons, everything's misshapen, uh, shriveled, kind of 
you know, looking like maybe beef jerky, uh, looking like, uh, like, you know, dried piece of fruit, something like this. Uh, that, that's just, it's a very, you know, claw-like uh, hand, right? And so Jesus is going to notice it. Now, catch this. He is going to know what's at stake in this. Like, he, he gets this. Uh, there, there are some of the religious leaders there, and tensions are high. This is the fifth conflict we've talked about, and uh, tensions are high. Uh, there's some there that they, they've, they're kind of looking for a reason to bring Jesus up on legal charges, and, and uh, breaking the Sabbath is a huge legal charge. It's in the Old Testament punishable by death, and so it's a huge legal charge, and so uh, so they're, they're looking to a, a, a kind of for a charge to arrest him. Uh, Jesus knows this. I think everyone there knows this. And one of the things I love about Jesus is he's not, uh, he's not afraid of a fight. He's, he's not really like, he's not, not going to back down from conflict. If there's something involving right or wrong, he's going to move towards it. Uh, Jesus sees this as a great opportunity to teach the people who God is, what Sabbath is about, how to interpret his word. And so he's going to move right towards it. All right, so let's see what happens. So you have your Bibles, you got your uh, notepads, your phones, your apps, whatever. Uh, let's go to uh, Mark chapter 3. And we'll pick it up at verse 1. So Mark 3, verse 1. So uh, another time, um, and so notice this is not a, a chronological description. Uh, these five events were not necessarily chronologically in order. Uh, he's just kind of giving us five events that happen early uh, in the ministry of Jesus to kind of get, let us know what's coming in the future. So another time, uh, he went to the synagogue. So that would be a Sabbath, uh, the, the, on the Sabbath, a Saturday and a man with his shriveled hand was there, and some were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And so Jesus says to the man with his shriveled hand, uh, stand up in front of everyone. Now, I love this because Jesus could have, uh, ob he could have easily avoided this conflict, couldn't he? Uh, he could have said, hey, Peter, uh, see the guy with the shriveled hand? Um, let's, let's get him backstage, get him to the green room, and uh, uh, after the service, I'm going to heal that hand. Um, because I just, I, I know there's some guys here, it's going to really upset them, and you know how they are, just get so, they're just so, um, they're just so uptight, and so um, let's just kind of, we'll just do it back there, because it's going to cause a problem, but, but not Jesus, um, he's come to bring the kingdom of God, he's come to reveal who God is, this is a great opportunity, and so he cares about this man, so he says, hey, would you stand up, uh, hey, you, uh, you, you with the shriveled hand, uh, <laughs> could you come here, could you stand up right in the fiddle of everyone, All right, so he's I don't know how this man's feeling about this, whether he's excited, like he's just won the lottery, it's his lucky day, uh, this is good, you know, Jesus noticed me, uh, or whether he's like uh, dying inside, like the last thing he wants to do is be the center of attention, we don't know, but he says, stand up in front of everyone, and so, so Jesus asks this great question, now he knows what's going on, he knows what they're thinking, he knows how they look at Sabbath, he knows you're looking to accuse him, he senses all of that, it's not hard, you know, I think people, anyone there could probably sense that, and so he senses all of that. And so he's going to ask this great question. And here's his question. He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath? In other words, like, like what's right thing to do on the Sabbath? What's right? What's wrong? Uh, would you say to do good or to do evil? Don't you love Jesus? He's so smart. <laughs> he just, he never loses an argument. Have you noticed, like, you read through the life of Jesus, like, he always outsmarts you. He's just brilliant. We, we, we forget, we think about Jesus as compassionate, we think about him as he is uh, powerful. Sometimes we forget he's brilliant. And, uh, and so he just reframes this whole issue and says, hey, just have a question for you. 
Like when, you, when, when God gave us the Sabbath, like do you think that he gave it to that, that it would be a day that we would do good, good on the Sabbath or that we would do evil? Which do you think? Remember what we learned last week about the Sabbath or two weeks ago, that Jesus said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Uh, the whole point of the Sabbath was a day for rest, restoration, and healing, right? That's what it was all about. And so he's taking them back to the whole purpose of God's word. And he says, well, what, which would you say? And then, then he kind of intensifies it a little bit. And he says, um, or to save life or to kill. Like, which would you say? You think the Sabbath was like, so he could kill people or maybe save people? Like, what you think? Well, they're not going for this game. So they remain silent. Now, I want you to notice what comes next. This is important, understanding who Jesus is. He looked around at them in what? Anger. Anger. Can I tell you something? That religious people make Jesus angry. And the reason they make him angry is because religion defaces God. Religion damages and misportrays God in such a way that it leads to bondage for people. And here are the spiritual leaders of this nation. Their job, God's given them his word and he's given them the gift of teaching and and the gift of study so that they can experience his word and use it to set people free. Here's the path to life. Like that, that's what the job of a spiritual leader is, a pastor, a teacher, to, to take the word of God and to use it to unfold it in such a way it brings freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And, and what had happened is they had taken the word of God, added all these man-made rules until the very word of God that was meant to liberate now becomes something that binds and destroys and it makes Jesus mad. He's just angry about that. Right? And then he, then he goes on and he says uh, he's deeply distressed. And in the Greek, it's a very strong word. It talks about a deep sadness. Uh, think sadness on steroids. It's very deep word. Deeply distressed at their what? Their stubborn hearts. In the Greek, what it literally says is their hard hearts. In other words, their harsh hearts. One of the things that religion does is it tends to rob us of our compassion. And so what had happened is that over time, they just lost the capacity to care. And so all they care about is these legalistic, what's right, what's wrong, can we arrest him, let's look for charges. The fact that he's going around healing sick people wherever he goes, they don't care. They want to throw him in prison. They want to stop him. They want to stop him from bringing the kingdom of God. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And so this man, remember, he's in the center of the room. Every eye's on him. Everyone senses the tension in the room. What's going to happen? They, they know who the religious leaders are. They, they know what's going on. They know who Jesus is. This is sort of, this is a, this is a high drama moment, this tense moment. Like, what's going to happen? Is Jesus going to back down? Is he going to heal him? Uh, he's going to engage. Like, what's going to happen? And he says, man, stretch out your hand and the moment he does, he stretched it out, his hand was what? 
It was completely restored. And so I want you to picture this uh, without a word, with, with, without a prayer, uh, without a laying on of hands, uh, without a anointing with oil, all Jesus says is stretch out your hand. And I want you to picture this is like, this is an amazing, this is like a, a, a movie, a high budget movie with awesome uh, special effects, but it's real. That I, that I want you to picture is this man, he's got this, remember, the shriveled, emaciated, uh, dried up, uh, uh, no muscles, uh, skin uh, taut hands. Uh, he, he's going he's gonna to put it, and the moment he puts it out, it's like the life just begins to, f- the creative power begins to flow into that hand, and that, that hand just comes alive, and, and the color comes back in the hand, and the muscles, you can see the muscles begin to form in the hand, and the ligaments uh, straighten out, and the bones are straight, and, and as he stretches it out, it's like the life of God is just flowing in the hand. And, and, and if you're there, I mean, your eyes have got to be wide open, saucers. And, and I'm sure people are starting to like, Yoo! you know, it's like this has got to be an exciting moment. And, and you're thinking like, hey, the religious leaders, like if you've never read the story of Jesus before, if this is the first time you've ever read it, you expect that what's going to happen is they're going to reevaluate, right? Like maybe we were wrong in this. Like, you know, obviously God is with this guy, whoever he is. Uh, only God could do something like that. That's amazing. Maybe we need to rethink our theology, right? Maybe, maybe it is okay. So what does the Bible really say about Sabbath? Does it really say you can't heal on the Sabbath? No, it doesn't really say that. Maybe we're wrong. You would hope that they would reevaluate. But, but it's not, and I'll tell you why. Because when we don't want to know the truth, and God reveals himself in a powerful way, it often drives us further away from God. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. When you don't want to know the truth, the truth will actually push you away. And so these men, instead of moving towards Jesus and and becoming more open, they become more close. And so this just ticks them off, that he has uh, flaunted his authority, he's challenged their authority, And so it says uh, in verse 6, then the Pharisees went out. And, of course, we know a lot about the Pharisees. This is that religious group that that had started off so well a couple hundred years before and now has become very highly legalistic and added all these man-made rules. So the Pharisees went out, and they began to plot with the Herodians. Now, this is interesting. We know a lot about the Pharisees from history. Uh, We know almost nothing about the Herodians from, from, from secular history. From the name, though, most scholars would, would believe that what this, these are Jewish people. I mean, they're in the synagogues. They're Jewish uh, leaders who are supporters of King Herod, who was the Roman-appointed king over their area, uh, over this area. And so, in other words, these were the collaborators with the enemy. Okay? This was a political party, a, Jew, a religious political party that supported the rule of Rome. And so the Pharisees would be the opposite of that. They, they, they would be people that were just totally against the, 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 the leadership of Rome. They, they would be religiously very conservative. To have these two to come together with a plot, it's kind of like having uh, right-wing Republicans coming together with left-wing radical environmentalist Democrats. Hey, let's, let's sponsor a bill, all right? It's like this is not, this is like never happens 
but they see in Jesus a common enemy, that he is a threat to both of them for different reasons, religiously and politically. Uh, religiously, they, they, these leaders don't want to give up their power. They don't want to give up their authority. They don't want to give up their place in society. Uh, the Herodians, they're, they're concerned about revolution. They're concerned about messiahs, that sort of thing. They both see him as an enemy, and, and they're going to plot to kill him. And that's why I've called this series Religion Kills. Because, thank you for that moment. Uh, <laughs> like, religion kills, da-da-da-da. Uh, anyway, um, uh, that's why I've called it religion kills because, uh, b- because uh, th- here's the thing is that as we follow the story of Jesus out, we're going to find that at the end of the story, it's the religious leaders that are arrested and lead him to execution in conjunction with the political leaders. So what we're seeing here is, is kind of the a foretaste of what is coming. And, and so what we're learning in this series is that, that religion is always the enemy of Jesus, Okay, it's it's always going to try to kill Jesus, uh, and so the closer we move towards religion, the further we move from Jesus, and the more religious we become, the more the life of Jesus dies in us. All right, and so so today we want to flesh it out a little bit more in this one last time as we wrap up this uh, this little mini series, and so a couple principles I want to highlight that flow out of this. So there in your note sheet, there's a section called uh, Religion Kills, again, creatively titled, part three. And, and so uh, a couple principles that are kind of big picture principles that help us to understand uh, what, what happens uh, when religion uh, uh, kind of confronts relationship with Jesus, uh, how that always leads to conflict, and, and in our lives, how when we get on the path to religion, like how to recognize it. Uh-oh, I'm on that path. I need to back up the truck and get off and get back on the path uh, to relationship. So here we go. Number one, the first principle goes like this, is that religion tends to major on the minors, Religion, one of the marks of, of religion is it tends to major on the minors. So, so let's talk about this. Uh, let's do a quick review here, what we've learned in this series. Uh, we started off by saying that, that religion uh, is the great enemy of relationship, that God's all about relationship. Uh, religion is often about kind of man-made rules, rituals, traditions, and that that, uh, that religion is the great enemy of relationship. And then we said that as fallen human beings, we all have this natural tendency to take a relationship with God and turn it into religion by adding man-made rules and, and traditions and, and so on. And so you remember this, that when Jesus came, we talked about that, how he was all into relationship. We, we talked about his teaching. Remember, we talked about Matthew chapter 22 when he was asked of all the commandments uh, in, in the Old Testament law, 613 of them, which is the most important. And remember, right away, he went to these two commandments. He said the most important thing is we're going to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're going to be passionate about God, going to please God, know God, and then we're going to love one another as we love ourselves. He says, that's why I've come. I've come to restore your relationship with God vertically and to teach you how to do relationship, a love relationship, with one another horizontally. Okay, and so that's the big picture. That's why he's come. And so what religion does is it flip-flops these things. It, it tends to, the, that, that's what I would call the major, okay? The major would be loving God uh, passionately, loving people compassionately. That's the majors. Well, well, religion tends to flip it, and religion tends to focus uh, kind of major on the minors. 
And it does this in a couple ways. And we've, we've, talked about, uh, we've talked about this some in this series. One of the ways it does it is by adding these man-made rules that really had nothing to do uh, with, with God at all. It just adds these rules. They're just the stuff that just kind of makes it up. I like the Pharisees. The second way, though, that, that religion majors on the minors is by taking something that's secondary that God truly has said. It's important, but it's a secondary issue and kind of flipping it around wrong into the telescope and making it the issue, kind of the major. And when you do that, what it does, when you make a minor a major, it obscures the major. See what, what happens. And so, for example, you see that in the Sabbath. Uh, uh, the, 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 the uh, religious leaders, first of all, they added all these man-made rules uh, that really had nothing to do with God to the Sabbath. Like you can't pull a friend out of a building that falls down and, and, and heal him on the Sabbath. You can't do that. That's against God never said that. That was a man-made rule. But secondly, uh, they, they took the Sabbath and they made the Sabbath so important that it trumps all other laws like compassion, like loving your neighbor, you see? Can you see those two different ways? There's two different ways to take a major, uh, to major on minors. One's to add things that God never said and, and major on that. The other is to take something God did say, but it's a secondary issue, and major on that in such a way that you miss the really, truly important thing. And so this is what religion uh, tends to do, uh, that it majors on uh, minors. And when this happens, what happens, we, we get on this road to religion. So let me give you an example. This just happens uh, throughout time, all the time, but in early, let's talk about the early church. Uh, a, a great church comes uh, along the church of Corinth, right? So, God, so, so uh, the Apostle Paul launches a church at Corinth. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes in amazing ways. And one of the ways that he blesses them with is a wide uh, array of, of just truly supernatural spiritual gifts, and so, uh, but as they go on, uh, the church of Corinth begins to major on the minors, okay? And so for them, it wasn't so much adding a lot of man-made rules, but it was, it was kind of like taking secondary things. There was a little bit of that, but it's taking some secondary things. And so here's the kinds of things that they were fighting over. So the church of Corinth, if you read that, the first letter of Corinthians, here are the kind of issues that were tearing the church apart. They were actually having church splits and fights over these issues. Let me, let me just kind of throw them out there and see if these sound at all familiar. All right. Um, uh, number one, they were arguing over which pastors were the best. Which apostles were the best? Is Peter better? Is, is Apollo better? Is uh, Paul better? So they were separating into factions based on their favorite apostle. All right. Uh, secondly, they were arguing over what Christians should eat and drink. Ever heard that one? Right? So, so uh, hey, what, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? Uh, what was it? They were, they were arguing over what to wear to church. Okay? Should you wear a beanie or not? You know, when you go, go to church. Like, what, what's the rules of that? Uh, they were arguing over spiritual gifts. Which gifts are most important? I think the gift of tongues is most important. That was kind of their, their thing, right? So they're arguing over spiritual gifts. And what was happening is they were dividing and looking down on one another. Right? They, they were, hey, we're better than them. We're, we're separating. And so Paul says, are you guys crazy? Like, what's, you think you're really mature. Like, you think you're mature believers. The reality is you're spiritual babies. And so he just kind of lets them have it. And then in chapter 13, he writes this famous uh, section, famous chapter on love. 
And we often read it at weddings, though in its original context, it had nothing to do with marriage. It's a good application, but it had nothing to do with its original context. And what he's saying is like, you guys have forgotten what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's about passion for God. It's about love for others. And so he begins to spell out how they're focusing on secondary issues and making them primary issues. And when that happens, it obscures the primary issue. Okay, so for example, there in your note sheet, uh, here's, here's this famous passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, in other words, like if I am the most gifted, uh, eloquent communicator, uh, or if I'm actually speaking uh, angelic language, uh, like a gift of tongues or something like that, he says, but I have not love, I've become a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just like the gong show. You know, it's like, I, he's, I, it's like my life, you know, it's like it's, it's worth nothing. You know, if, if what's motivating your teaching isn't love, then it's nothing. He goes, he says, and then he goes on, he says, if, if I have the gift of prophecy, so God's speaking prophetically through me, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. I'm the wisest theologian. I can answer any question at all. Um, and if I have faith that can move mountains, I'm a miracle worker. I've got my own TV show, whatever. Uh, he says, but I have not love. I am what? Nothing. Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, you know, I, I sell it all, I give it to the poor, and I surrender my body to the flames, just kind of a martyr myself. But I have not love, uh, I gain nothing. You see what he's doing? He's bringing them back and saying, remember, you're Christians. You're Christians. What's important is loving God, loving one another. You are taking secondary issues. Now, d- does, it, does it, some of these issues matter? Of course they matter. Does it matter uh, which gifts are most important or how they should be used or, or you know, uh, the, the, whether we eat meat sacrifice? Is there a right and is there a wrong answer? Of course there is, and Paul gave them. But he said, but these are secondary issues, and what you're doing is you're making the secondary the primary. And when you do that, you're losing the primary. And whenever that happens, you're kind of on the road to religion, you see? And so it's so easy. Here's the thing. for us. To, it's so easy for us to... Uh, to look back at the Pharisees, like we've talked all through this series, and t- it's so obvious, isn't it? Look, they're adding these man-made rules, and, and they're kind of making the secondary things the primary things, and they're missing what's most important. I mean, look, here's, here's this poor guy with a shriveled hand. He probably can't hold down a normal job. Maybe he's not been able to be married. He can't provide for his family. His whole life is ruined. And, 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 and you're, you're saying we shouldn't heal him because it's the wrong day of the week. Come back during normal business hours. <laughs> like, you see, see, one of the first things to go when we become religious is our compassion. It's one of the first things to go. And that's why religious people are often harsh people. And, and that's why you can often go into churches and what you'll find there is not a spirit of compassion. You find a spirit of rigidity and harshness across this land. Because we've fallen into the same trap of the Pharisees. We've, we've made secondary things primary things. We've taken man-made rules and we've put them over God's laws. And what's happened is we've, we've, we've missed what's most important. And so we've talked about that in this series. We've talked about how we can do that today. We've talked about some of our man-made rules that we come along with. Maybe it's how you dress in church or what's a pro- what kind of music or instruments should be used or what you should eat or what you should drink, especially on the drinking side. Or we, we begin to uh, we come up with all these things, programs, what programs we should run. And we honor certain traditions. And there's all these different man-made rules that we, we come up. And we do the same thing as the Pharisees. And we start measuring 
measuring ourselves by the wrong ruler. We start measuring like these are the, truly the things that, 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 that matter. But we also do is catch this in this whole issue of taking secondary things and make them primary. Like, let me just give you some examples that I've seen in my lifetime. You'll see a movement come along. And maybe it'll be a theological movement that they're kind of recapturing part of, of, of the teaching of, of the Bible they think is particularly important. Maybe it'll be like reformed theology or, or kind of the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God or this kind of, you know, uh, Calvinism or something. And all of a sudden, uh, this uh, great movement starts turning sideways and it starts criticizing everyone else who, who uh, doesn't see it the same way. Right, and so if you don't, if you don't see, if you're not really big on predestination, then you're not really truly a follower of Jesus. And and so what have we done? We've taken a secondary issue, we made it a primary issue. You you see it uh, in other circles where uh, the Holy Spirit will move in a church, and and many people will will uh, have a new, fresh experience of the Holy Spirit, and some will speak in tongues. It's just a beautiful thing. It's like God is moving, and then all of a sudden, uh, the, the movement goes south as as we forget the we we take secondary, make them primary, and the people that have had this experience start looking down on the people that haven't had this experience. And if you haven't had this experience, and you don't really have the Holy Spirit, and what have we done? We've taken a secondary issue, we've made it a primary issue. It can happen with politics. You know, this, this is the way all Christians should vote, or this is the way you should express your, your, you know, your influence in society. This is the way Christians should do it, and if you're not doing it that way, it's, it's the wrong way. Uh, we can do it with the way we, uh, with homeschool. I've seen this happen in churches with homeschoolers, where homeschoolers are like, if you're not homeschooling your kids, you don't really love your kids. It's like, you, you, you know, you're just giving them over to the devil, right? And so, uh, I've seen it happen in a million different ways, where, where, we, where, where what we do is we take a secondary issue, we make it the primary issue, and the process, we stop loving one another, which is the heart of the message. You see? Does this make sense? And so, as followers of Jesus, anytime we, we take a mind, we start majoring on the minors, let me tell you, we are on the road to religion, and it will kill us and it will destroy church, it will destroy relationships, it will destroy friendships, it will pull us away from God, it will destroy our witness in the world. Now number two, the second thing is that religion tends to ask the wrong questions. I love this, Jesus reframes this whole issue. I love his his mastery, how he, he just brilliantly reframes the issue. The the religious leaders there are framing, the, the, here's the question they're asking. They're, they're, they're in, a, in, in, in a large degree, they're asking, what shouldn't we do on the Sabbath? Okay, they're, they're coming at it from sort of a negative angle. Like, what can't you do? Let's come up with, we'll come up with 39 categories of things that are work, and then we're gonna, we're gonna have a long list of, I, I showed you a couple weeks ago, 37 pages in the mission, a small print, of here's what you can't do on the Sabbath. And so, so their mindset is in order to have a relationship with God, it's all about focusing on what you can't do. So they're asking questions, what can't you do? What Jesus does is he flips that question around and says, what should we be doing on the Sabbath? And so if you look at 5-4, I mean 2-4 again, 3-4, I was just hoping we were further along, 3-4, uh, so Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Do you see how he reframes the question? 
instead of like kind of legalistic, what's right, what's wrong, he says, what's, what's, is it good or is it evil? And, and he kind of takes them back to the whole purpose of, of the Sabbath. And, and this helps us understand. And one of the things I've noticed over the years is that, is that often for religious people, that we, we, we tend to ask the question, what shouldn't we be doing? Now, let me say this. There is a time and a place to ask that question. It's a good question. There's a lot of things as followers of Jesus we shouldn't be doing, okay? Right? So, so, for example, as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be... Uh, uh, you think of some of the ways that you think of the world thinks of Christians. Okay, Christians, like, Christians don't cuss. They don't party. They don't get drunk. They don't get wasted. Uh, they don't sleep around. Uh, they, they don't rip people off because there's certain things. Okay, now... This is helpful in a sense because uh, there are certain things, as Christ was, we shouldn't do, and the reason we don't do them is because they are violations of the act of, of love, and they're violations of love. And so one way of defining love is by defining it negatively. This is what love doesn't do, okay? So, and that's a good thing. So, so love doesn't use language to tear people down. Uh, uh, love doesn't use language that's crass or crude or uh, 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 you know, inappropriate or swear, like, because it, it's not, it doesn't build up, it tears down. And so that, that's appropriate. And, and love doesn't go out and get wasted at parties because when that happens, I'm told, uh, that when that happens, that, uh, that you lose your self-control and you end up doing things that you wouldn't normally do and you, you lose, you're giving up control of your life to something other than Jesus and so you don't want to get wasted because bad things may happen. Uh, you, you don't want to sleep around because if you're doing that, whether you realize it or not, you're ripping off the person uh, of a very important part of who they am and who God's created to be. It's, it's a violation act of love. If you steal someone's car, you're ripping them off. It's not, so, so there's nothing wrong with defining love in negatively. It's helpful, okay? But, but what I found is that for religious people, we often stop there. We, we focus on what we don't do. And when Jesus turns the question around, he says, we need to be asking it differently. We need to be asking, what is the Sabbath for? Is it for doing good or evil? And once you reframe the question, it becomes a different, it refocuses your whole attention. And you realize that, hey, this is a day that was given to do good. And so as followers of Jesus, we, it's not enough to say, what shouldn't we be doing? We have to ask the question, what should we be doing? And so in theology, we talk about two kinds of sin. We talk about sins of commission. That's things that we do that violate the law of love that we shouldn't do. But here's the part we often don't talk about enough. It's sins of omission. It's the things that we should do that we're not doing. Like, let me give you an example. In Isaiah 58, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is trying to figure out why God has forsaken them and why he's not blessing. And so their natural instinct is to get religious on God. And so typically when this happens, they start increasing sacrifice, they start doing more ritual. In this case, they increase fasting. They start going without food in order to get God's attention so he'll bless them. And, and God comes to the prophet Isaiah and he says, listen, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a fast, but not that kind of fast. And he said, uh, here's what needs to happen. And he begins to define sins of commission 
and the divine sins of omission. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's what you need to stop doing. You need to stop exploiting your workers. You need to stop doing injustice in your courts. Okay, those are sins of commission, right? He says, now, here's what you need to start doing. Here's the sins of omission. He says, you need to start feeding the poor. He says, you, you need to start clothing the naked. You need to start providing shelters for the homeless. Okay? You see what's going on here? And so often as followers of Jesus, we define ourselves and the world defines us as by what we don't do. We need to start asking the quite right question. And the right question is what should we be doing? You see? And as you study the teaching of Jesus, what you find out is the reason that Jesus has rescued us is not just so we can be saved and go to heaven, but that we can become a force for good wherever we go in the world. And, and so let me give you some examples from the New Testament. These are verses that are very plain, straightforward. We often just miss them. They're in your note sheet. I just gave three quick examples. There's many more. You'll see some in your life group homework this week. But Jesus, uh, the first one comes from Matthew chapter 5. And this is part of the famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It goes from Matthew 5 through Matthew's, whoa, Matthew 7. These don't spill. <laughs> it's the most awesome cup in the world. It's called Contigo. You get them at uh, Costco. Two for $18. Look at this. Awesome. Keeps things hot for five hours. Cold for 14 hours. And what a deal. Where can you do that, right? Okay. And if you order right now, I've got... Uh, uh, so, most famous sermon in the history of the world, Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. And so, in, in chapter 5, he's kind of describing, here's what it looks like to be a follower of, of mine. And he says, uh, ver, look at this familiar verse, 514, he says, you are the what? You're the light of the world. In other words, this is a dark world. They're, they're confused. They don't know which one's up. Your job is to light it up. Your, your job is to show the way. Your, your way. You're like a flashlight. In a dark world, that's your role. You just kind of walk around. People are like, oh, look, there, there's how, that's how it's supposed to be done. Like, there, there you go. And so he says, you're the light of the world, so let your light shine before men. Kind of be who you are, that they may see your good what? Good deeds. Now, in the Greek, it actually says works, your good works. Now, I, I don't know what comes to your mind when I hear the word good works, but this is probably just from my upbringing or something. When I hear, of, like, do good deeds, like, like, what comes to your mind? Like, doing a good deed. There you go, right there, exactly. Walking an old lady across the street. That's what comes to my mind, right? And so I kind of think hokey. I think hokey. You know, it's like, okay, good deed a day. Christians, we're the good people. We go every day, we do one good thing, you know. Uh, and, and it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about live your life in such a way that you're a force for good wherever you go, and you light it up. It's like someone looks at you and goes, like, man, the way they live life, that's a lot better than the way I'm living life. Like, like that makes sense. Like, that, that whole way of living life. They, they see your family and go, man, I wish I had a family like that. They see a marriage. I wish I had a marriage like that. Uh, they, they look at the way you handle your finances. Look, they, they seem to have that together. They just, our attitude towards on the workplace is like, man, I wish I was more like that. Like, we would just be people wherever we go. We light it up, okay? And he says, and then what happens, they'll end up praising your Father in heaven. They'll, they'll, they'll be drawn to God in their own lives. 
And so you say, well, what does it look like to light it up? Well, on, this, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says he just goes on. He, talks, he just gives example after example after that point on. He says it's learning how to deal with your anger. It's learning how to be faithful to your spouse. It's learning how to be a, a man or a woman of your word. It looks like uh, helping the poor and caring about the poor. It looks like about, it just kind of goes on and on. Just here's, here's how you light it up. Okay? And so uh, that's our colleague. Look at the next passage. This is a great passage because it's a very famous one in evangelical uh, circles, like churches kind of like ours that are Bible-believing, believe in Jesus and his, his death and resurrection for us and all. Very popular verse, but we often miss the, the second part of the verse. So it's, it's a passage about how we come to faith in Je- how we come to our relationship with God is not based on our performance. It's based on what Jesus has done. It's by faith in Jesus, his death. So he says, for by grace you've been saved. It's through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And so we, this is the verse we often trumpet, right? We're Christ's followers. We're saved by faith, not by works. Okay, good. Good, that's the first half of the story. We got that one down. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the second half of the story. And the second half is, for we are God's workmanship, his project. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good what? Works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we're saved so that we become a force for good. Again, not the walk on the lady across the street. And again, so if, if you see an old lady across the street and needs help, help her out. I'm not saying shouldn't. But I mean, that is good. But you know what I'm saying? It's that, that mindset, right? Now, in fact, this is, I love what Peter says next in Acts chapter 10, where he's summing up the life of Jesus. He's sharing Christ with a Roman military officer named Cornelius and his family. And he's, he's, he's talking about Jesus. And he says, you know what has happened throughout Judea. Uh, that's, a, you know, the, the kind of Israel. And beginning in Galilee in the north after the baptism that John preached, you know, John the Baptist, uh, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. We saw that at his baptism. And how he went around what? Yeah. Let's say it together. He went around yeah. doing good. So, so why did Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath? Because that's just what he did. He went around doing good. And he had the power to heal. And so that's what he did. And he just went around kind of doing good. Okay? And, and so what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to be someone who's going around doing good in the deepest sense of the word. I'm not talking superficial good. I'm talking about do, do, uh, uh, sincere, deeply good. You know, and it starts like it starts in our own homes. It starts with, with our own marriages. Like, are you a person that does good to your spouse? Is your spouse better off with you than without you? Some of you are going, oh, I haven't asked that one in a long time. <laughs> like, can we just move on? But, but seriously, hey, seriously, if, if, if you're married, would your spouse marry you again? Would, would they say that you're a person that does them good? I, I think of Proverbs 31, it talks about a wife, but it could be applied to a husband. Proverbs 31 says that she does him good all the days of her life. Like, like, are you a wife that does your husband good? Are you a husband that does your wife good? How about your kids? Are they, are they, uh, are, are they fortunate? I'm not going to ask their opinion. They might be wrong. But are they fortunate to have you as their parents? Are you doing them good? And then it, then it moves out. In your life group, like in your life group, are you doing good? 
When there's someone struggling financially, are you, are you taking the van and filling it up with groceries and, and going and giving it to them? When they're in the hospital, are you going to visit them and, and taking care of them? Are, are you reaching out to one another when you're discouraged and you're taking out for, are you doing good? Are you a force for good? When you go on your job site, uh, are, are you the kind of person that people want there because you're, you're, you're a hard worker and you care about people? And, and when there's people that are hurting there, you're reaching out. Are you doing good? You see, this is our job description. As a follower of Jesus, for too long, we've defined ourselves by what we don't do. What we don't do is important, but it's only half a story. You see, religion asks the wrong questions. And what about as we move out into the world and our community? You know, a couple weeks ago, well, I guess just last week at Easter, with this great video about this, uh, this lady in Simi Valley. If you were here last week, you saw it. But, uh, you know, the, the city of Simi Valley came to us as a church, and they said, you know, we've got a problem. We've got a lady. She's an old elderly lady. She's in, uh, her house is in total code violation. Neighbors are complaining. Her husband's in prison. Uh, she doesn't have any money, and she has cancer. Is there anything you could do? Now, she doesn't go to Rocky Peak. As far as I know, she's not a believer. And it was so awesome because it started with one life group. I think about four life groups ended up getting involved. And they went over. If you saw the video, I mean, they just, they just redid that house. They just blitzed that house on that day. And I'm telling you, people were blown away. It's like the neighbors were coming up and asking, like, who are you people? <laughs> oh, we're the church. A church? Like, what's the church doing out here? <laughs> the world should not be asking, what's the church doing out here? <laughs> the church should be going like, and the, the neighborhood should be going, oh, that makes sense. Of course, of course. You're those Jesus followers. You go out doing good. You know, it's like, it's what you do. Right? And so, you know, there was people from the neighborhood. There was one man that day. Now, I don't know if he's a believer or not. But when he saw what was happening, he said, I want to be a part of that. He called in to work sick so he could be part. This is inspired to help, you see. Um, I, this, this thing we're doing, you know, this initiatives for the poor, these water wells, uh, we, about every three or four months we do an initiative for the poor. You know, the, the primary reason we started doing that about three years ago is because there's so much in my heart that we need to change the paradigm of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and for too long, we've not really seen caring about the poor as being part of our core job description. And so this, is, this won't change the whole world. It's a small way for us to begin to shape our paradigm of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If every three or four months we focus on people that have nothing to do with us, that, that aren't part of our body, and we just say, okay, there's, there's homeless who need blankets. There's people that are hungry in L.A. that need food. There are people around the globe that are barely making that if we buy a farm animal, it'll make a huge difference in their life. There's communities around the world without water. If we, if we give up water for a week, we can make a big difference in several communities. These are not like huge things, but they're paradigm shifting issues. They, they begin to change in a small way the way we think. And it begins to help us to ask the right questions and the right question is not just what shouldn't we do, but what should we be doing? And, and I love that. And, you know, every month we send a team down to go into high-security prison in, in, uh, in Mexico. A lot of you probably don't know this, but every, every month we, we send a team down. And they go down there ostensibly to help these men with eyeglasses 
Picture a high-security prison in Mexico. It is a squalid affair. It is a a hell-raising type of environment with many people that were carrying out life sentences that have been there since they're teenagers. There is no hope. And yet you see this team go in to help fit them with eyeglasses, to share the love of God, to give them word of hope, to pray. And often these hardened criminals They have the marks on their body of how many people that they've killed. They have tears coming down their eyes because there's some people going out doing good in Jesus' name, see? And this is the church we want to be, right? This is who we want to be. This is what Jesus calls us to be. I believe it's our future. I believe as we follow Jesus in our future, this will increasingly be. I love it when we see increasingly more and more people from Rocky Peak partnering up with Hope of the Valley uh, over in, uh, uh, you know, in the San Fernando Valley, this new rescue mission, going over there, serving meals, helping lead church services. You see, more and more we're out there, more and more. It doesn't start out there. It starts at home, like we talked about. It, it, it moves to our life groups. It starts here. It's all the way across. But see, one of the marks of religion is that it, it majors on the minors and it stops asking the right questions. One of the marks of Jesus' followers is we keep first things first, loving God, loving people, and that we always keep on asking the right questions. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for Jesus, for sending him to us. You said that he is the word of God because he more clearly communicates the truth about who you are than any just written word could ever do. And as we watch his life, as we watch his anger, as we watch his sadness, as we watch, as we listen to his questions, it reminds us who we are and what it means to be the light of the world and follow in his example. And so, Lord, we pray as we wrap up this little mini-series about religion that you would use it in our lives to free us increasingly from the bondage of religion and to motivate us to pursue with all of our heart a true relationship with you, a true love for others. And we pray, Lord, that as we uh, worship now, as we, we, we pray, as we, we come before you and ask you to make us that church, uh, we pray as we bring our offerings that you would create a place here that would truly be a place that is a place of refuge and strength for the lost, a place of healing and hope for those in darkness, and that we would truly be a light in a dark place. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let it come in the here and now. I think of what Jesus said. He taught us to pray, our Father in the heavens, uh, may your name be honored in all the earth, and may your kingdom come Uh, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, let's link that up with what Jesus said when he comes to the beginning of Mark. He says, my message is the kingdom of God is near. And wherever Jesus would go, the kingdom would advance. And so one time he told his men as he sent them out on mission, he, he said, when you go out, tell people that the kingdom of God has come near. Because as you go out, the kingdom goes out. You see, And so they became an extension of Jesus. Next weekend, we're going to watch that happen. 
We're going to watch as the ministry of Jesus begins to expand. People are coming from greater and greater distances to heal, be healed, to learn to hear him teach. Jesus will once again pull away from the crowds. He'll go up in the mountains. He'll take his closest disciples there. He'll spend a night in prayer. And then he will select the 12 men who will become the leaders of the movement. The people that will take the kingdom that Jesus brought and begin to expand it out. And that kingdom begins to expand and, and it's, it continues to this day. And when a man or woman comes to Jesus, we become part of that kingdom. We become a representative of Jesus. We become like he is the light of the world. We became a light of the world. And as he goes around doing good, that's our calling that people might glorify our Father in heaven. They might come to faith, come to, come to know him. So I hope you can join us next weekend as we talk about, as Jesus selects these 12 men, what he says their job description is. Because in reality, their job description is really our job description. There's, there's part of its relationship with Jesus. There's part of joining him in his cause. And both are so important. So I hope you can be with us for that. Until then, uh, may... The Jesus who brought the kingdom, may he be your Jesus this week, and may you be an extension of that kingdom. May he be so transforming you from the inside out that by the power of his spirit that lives in you, you may become a force for good wherever you go, starting in your homes, moving out into your life groups, in your workplace, the community, in your church, that here together that we might see the kingdom of God advancing for his name and for his fame. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.